please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians, as we'll be returning to the text we looked at last week, Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 to 15, but we'll be finishing up the second half of this today. So Galatians chapter 5 and verses 7 to 15. Galatians chapter 5, verses 7 to 15. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from Him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and that the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision... Why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another... Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Last week then we began looking at this passage and we separated it into three points. And I gave you those three points and I'll give you them once more this morning. Right? The first point was I set forward. Point number two, I set on the cross. And point three, I set lovingly upon one another. Now last week as we looked at that first point, I set forward, we said that Paul's efforts were, were being directed at getting the saints to run well. And he is attempting to get them to run well by directing their eyes right back to, to where they need to go for them to be able to run across that finish line. And what Paul says to them though is, is something that is applied to, to all of us, isn't it? As we learned last week, that if you are a Christian, right, every Christian is, is running this race, right? We are all in this same race together. Uh, the problem, though, is that not many of us are proficient runners, right? Not many of us run well. Uh, the, the Galatians were not running well, were they? And they were not running well because they allowed themselves to be distracted, right? To take their eyes off of the goal to, to look in other directions than the one necessary to run across that finish line. Right, we said last week when you, when a runner runs, you're not going to be a very successful runner if you, if you run looking to the left or looking to the right or, or running to the finish line while looking behind you. Right? You're not going to succeed that way. And so the, the way in which we become proficient runners Right? The way that we all ought to desire to be a proficient runner, right? it means running with our eyes directed straight ahead of us. Right? That our eyes are directed forward, looking towards the goal, right? looking towards that tape that lie across the finish line. The Judaizers, we also said, were then attempting to get these Gentile saints uh, to, to look backwards, right? to, to have them stop running well. Because they were telling them that to be a good runner means to go back to the Old Covenant. Right? To be a good runner means observing 
these mosaic requirements. Being a good runner starts with being circumcised. Right? That's what they're telling these converts. But we need to see that simply a distraction tactic right, used by the evil one right, to get the believer to, to not run well or to not run at all. Right? He's constantly, deceptively using all of his tricks at his disposal to destroy the Christian. Right? And here he works through the Judaizers uh, to tempt them to abandon the gospel of pure grace in exchange for a hybrid gospel. Right? A gospel of, of grace plus works. And so Paul comes out, as we've seen last week, questioning them. Then. Right? Who has hindered you from running well? Right? Who has hindered you from running well? Right, this new gospel that they were starting to accept, uh, Paul says they, they should have seen as a fraudulent gospel. Right? They should have seen from the beginning that this was not from God. Why? Because the doctrine that the Judaizers brought to them, that they were teaching them, was not a doctrine that was helping them to run well. In fact, the doctrine they were teaching them was, was hindering them and stopping them from running at all. And so he reminds them, this doctrine that you are being taught is not from God. Right? Because what God has done is God has brought freedom to you. Right? He has preached a, a gospel of, of freedom in Christ. And so what's not going to happen is He's not now going to send new messengers uh, to, to reinstitute a, a doctrine of bondage and slavery once more. Right? That's how you know it. it's not a doctrine that comes from God. This is why then He cautions them in verse 9 saying, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Right? It's a warning to them to have nothing to do with false teaching or false teachers. Right? To, to get them out of the church because it can be so dangerous if you keep them around. They can have a, a soul-damning effect upon the church. If you allow that false teaching right, to continue to, to permeate and reach the entire church. This also, though, is why we said the brunt of Paul's anger is not upon these Gentile converts, though, is it? No, but rather the brunt of his anger is upon these false teachers who would, who would do this to these poor saints. Right? That's why he said in, in verse 10 last week, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Right? Paul's confidence ultimately lies in then the Lord with how this will turn out. Right, and what will result? Right, he, he lays it at the feet of God and he says, right, God ultimately will, will cause those who are truly His people to, to hear sound doctrine and to believe it and to be drawn to it and all others He will deal with as they need to be dealt with. Right, severely punishing them in His judgment. Now that summarizes in our first point that we looked at last week. Uh, that Paul sought to remind them of their need to set their eyes forward that they might run the race well. Now this week we want to pick up off of where we left uh, last time. Uh, and we'll do so by looking at uh, verse 11 then together this morning. Look with me there once more, please. Uh, but if I, brother, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Right? So this leads us to our, our second point then, which is I set on the cross. I sit on the cross. Now, what appears to have happened is that there are people saying that Paul is preaching two different Gospels. Right? That, that Paul is perhaps preaching a Gospel of circumcision when he is 
before a Jewish audience. And then when he stands before a Gentile audience, he is preaching this kind of free grace gospel or freedom in Christ uh, that is all of grace apart from the works of the law. And so these Judaizers are saying, look, Paul is, is preaching these two different ways. He's not someone who ought to be trusted. right? He's not a trustworthy figure. You should not listen to him. And so Paul comes along and he looks to dispel this notion. And he does so by by saying to them, well, why then am I still being persecuted? Right? If I am preaching this, this doctrine of circumcision, why are the Jews angry with me? Right? They wouldn't be persecuting me if I was preaching the doctrine of circumcision. In fact, they would love me, wouldn't they? Right? The Jews, if I preached circumcision, they would be my friend. But that's not the case. Right? They hate Paul. And they sought to destroy his character. Why? Because he preached against circumcision. And he preached against it. Now, Paul was fully aware, wasn't he, that, that if he did preach a doctrine of circumcision, that the offense of the cross would be removed, wouldn't it be? And then there would be no more fighting over the gospel. There would be no more persecution of Paul if he just gave in and preached a doctrine of circumcision along with these Judaizers. What we see is that, that Paul could not do that, right? Paul was, was compelled against doing that. He was compelled because it was God and God alone who saved Paul, right? who, who, who pulled him up from destruction and darkness and transferred him to his marvelous light on that Damascus road, opening Paul's eyes, removing the scales, granting to Paul salvation. So he's compelled by his, his God right? to, to, to not turn away from the gospel that he has been given. Right? He is also compelled by his love for Christ, his love for his Savior, whom his heart is now tethered to. Paul is also compelled, knowing that he owes all of his allegiance, all of his trust. Right? He owes everything that he is to the Lord. Right? All obedience is to be rendered to, to God and, and God alone. And so Paul was much more willing, right, to offend others, right, to offend man, than to ever offend his God. No matter what that meant, even if that meant persecution. Now, sadly, in our day and age, this is something that, that has kind of fallen off the wayside, hasn't it? Right? It's, it's sad to see that those who have been maybe called and sent by churches to be heralders of God's Word, right? they are the ones now who are, are so guilty of softening the message of the Gospel. Or of, or of hiding aspects of the Gospel which sinners so desperately need to hear. And they do so. And one, of, one way is, is by preaching a gospel that's only about the love of God. Um, now, it is true that the gospel and the, and the cross right, is about the love of God, but the cross also is about much more than just love. Right? The, the cross At the cross, you see the, the love of God uh, most clearly visible there. But also at the cross, which you clearly see visible, is the justice of God as well. Right? You see the, the wrath of God at the cross as He pours it out upon His Son uh, that He might bear the penalty uh, of sinners everywhere who would trust and believe in His name. At the cross, you see the, the kiss of God's love and God's justice combined. Right? There you see mercy and justice. Right? You see uh, the beauty of God's love and the in many respects, the beauty of God's wrath right at the cross. But 
But today, what happens, right? We want to make the gospel all about love, and we don't want to bring up those other aspects like the, the appeasement of the wrath of God on the cross, or Him sending His own Son to die for guilty sinners even though His Son is innocent, right? Those are kind of things that people today like to leave out of the gospel because they don't want people to be offended by those things. Ultimately, at the end of the day, though, all that preacher is doing is demonstrating or proving that, that he himself, in fact, is offended by the gospel as well. Right? That's why those things are left out. Because they are offended by God's word. And then we question and we wonder why the, the church is so confused as to what the gospel is. Right? Why the church lacks such a, a strong witness in the world. Why believers are so scared to, to talk to unbelievers even about what the gospel is. Because we're afraid that those unbelievers who are offended by it will ask us questions about the gospel that, in fact, many Christians likewise are offended by. And so preachers and people, when they speak about the gospel, when they speak about the cross, what do you find them oftentimes doing? They try to turn the gospel, they try to turn the cross into a whole new shape, don't they? They try to turn the cross into an entirely different shape. They would prefer the cross not be the cross. They would prefer the cross to be more in the shape of maybe something like a heart. That's what they want the the cross to be. No longer a cross, but but a heart. Right? But none that bear the name of Christ nor none who have the title of minister ought to ever, ever declare a gospel or share a gospel that is only half a gospel. Right? We ought to never share a gospel or declare a gospel that the devil himself could walk out of the service clapping and amening. Because he knows that the gospel you just told somebody about, the gospel the minister just proclaimed, was no gospel at all. And that it has no power to save any. But oftentimes, isn't that what we see going on today? People declare God's Word in such a way that they want to appease sinners. But when you're seeking to appease sinners, thus you are not not pleasing God, but you are rather pleasing the devil. You're not making God happy when you share half a gospel, but you are making the devil happy. And so we have to ask ourselves, are there any here amongst us that that do that very thing? We all have have family that we love desperately and we want them to be saved. But are there any of you here who know that there are certain aspects of the gospel they would be offended by and so as you talk to them about the gospel, you remove it because you want to get them into the kingdom so very badly? Right? Are there friends, right, co-workers, neighbors that when you share the gospel to, you know that certain aspects of the gospel will offend and so you, you kind of hide those truths because you don't want them to be offended by those things. We have to ask ourselves, is is this what we do? Now, what is true, though, on the other side of that uh, is this, is that uh, there are people who know the cross is the cross and that the cross will offend, but oftentimes do just as much damage as the others to the cross itself. Right? Because there are people out there who think that because the cross offends, so too must I. Right? If the cross is offensive, that means I must be offensive as well. And I'm sure we all have seen this, witnessed this, heard this in the pulpit, or, 
with someone just sharing the gospel with another. Right? They say, ah, they, they attempt to offend, they try to offend someone. But brothers and sisters, that's not what we're called to do. We're not called to offend. All that is, is you trying to add to the offense of the gospel. That's what that is. But the gospel is what it is to offend, not you. Not your demeanor. Not your attitude towards that person. Not the, the language or the volume of the voice you use. Those things shouldn't be what offends somebody. Those things just stand in the way of the offense of the gospel. That's you trying to add to the offense of the gospel, which we must not do. It's not for you to do those things. In fact, as we tell people about the gospel, it ought to spring forth out of a principle of love, and they ought to see that. Because these people are, are, are God's image bearers. And we see them headed to eternal destruction. And you remember yourself. right? That, that you were once just like them. That you were on a crash course with disaster as well. It was Charles Spurgeon who said this, We show our love to the cross, not by adding offense, but by loving and trying to bless those who are offended by it. I hear that again. Spurgeon says, We show our love to the cross, not by adding offense, but by loving and trying to bless those who are offended by it. The cross is offensive enough, isn't it? We don't need to add any extra offense to it. If someone is going to be offended, let them be offended by the cross and not you. Now, one reason, though, I think that people do this is because they don't actually understand what it means for the cross to be offensive. I think a lot of people out there lack understanding of what that means. Right? We have to remember, who is the gospel offensive to? The unbeliever. Right? The gospel's not offensive to you and I, is it? Of course not, it's not. To you and I, it's the, it's the loveliest of, of messages that we've ever heard, right? It's the, it's the sweetest thing that has ever been done for mankind, right? That's what it is to the believer. And so the cross by nature isn't offensive. The cross, in fact, is something lovely. It's something wonderful. It's something beautiful. And so we have to ask the question, why is the cross offensive then to some and not to others? Right? Why is it offensive to the unbeliever, but not the believer? Well, it's offensive because it's offensive to human wisdom. Right? It offends human wisdom. Right? The unbeliever finds it offensive to their wisdom. They find it offensive to, to their way of thinking. Why? Well, because the Gospel declares that we are wretched sinners. Right? The, the Gospel declares that there is nothing good in you and I. The Gospel declares... That we have offended a, a holy God and we are deserving of death and condemnation. Right? The, the gospel declares that by our own efforts we can never enter heaven or become a child of God. All things that by nature people don't want to hear. Right? Because it, it strikes at the pride of man. That's why it offends. Because it offends the, the pride of man. Right? It hurts the pride of man to think, that me being a relatively good person, right, living a relatively moral life my entire life, can receive the same reward that this vile person, that relatively speaking would look, be looked at as bad in the world, would receive 
simply by believing in Jesus? He gets the same reward after I did all this good that I get? And it strikes at the, at the pride of man. They hate that God doesn't make distinctions between persons based on effort. They hate the message that says we must depart with looking to ourselves and, and trusting in our own efforts. That's why the unbeliever finds Christianity and the cross so offensive. When in fact, brothers and sisters, the, the cross, the message of the cross, should not be offensive at all to anybody. This is why the angel comes and he tells those shepherds, I bring you a message of, does he say of offense? Of glad tidings and great joy. What does the very word gospel mean? Good news. The gospel is good news. The gospel is a a message of glad tidings and great joy. And so the reality is, brothers and sisters, is that what we and what the world ought to be offended by is what Judaism teaches, is what Mormonism teaches, is what Islam teaches, is what Roman Catholicism teaches. Right? That they have the audacity to tell mankind that the way in which you enter into glory with God Almighty is through your own efforts and your own works. That's what you ought to be offended by. That that they would deceive you into thinking that your own imperfect works could gain you access to a perfect, holy, and just God. That's what the world ought to be offended by. Not Christianity. Not to be offended with Christianity at all. But instead the world chooses to do what? To find offense with a message that says Christ has come to set the captive free. How absurd. Right? The world is offended by a message that says No longer seek heaven by your own works, but simply believe in Christ that He has accomplished all for you. That is what this world is offended by. The message that that God from all of eternity loved a people, sent His Son, His own Son to die for you, that you may live with Him in glory forever. That's what the world is offended by? That message? Who would be offended by that? Paul certainly wasn't offended by that, was he? Paul wasn't ashamed of that message. Because Paul knew that that's the only message through which God works salvation to His people. That's the only message by which God unites sinners to His Son. And so Paul's message, though, is for those who believe in the Gospel, right? who, who do not compromise, uh, though there will be persecution, right? there will be suffering. And Paul is a prime example of that. Right? He is being persecuted for preaching the gospel. And those attacks can and do hurt, don't they? I think about, you know, parents who have children now who are, who are grown up in age, and the parents are believers, the children aren't believers. That hurts, doesn't it? And it hurts especially when your children persecute you in the sense that maybe they, they mock you, right? they make fun of you, they, they laugh at, at, at your faith. It happens the other way around too, though, doesn't it? Uh, for many, there are children who are believers and who are grown up. And you have parents who are unbelievers. And it hurts that, that they don't believe and that they mock you and, and laugh at you and the things that you do and believe and they speak evil about you behind your back to other family members or friends. I mean, think about how much it hurts siblings 
Right? One's a believer, one's not. They grow up and they never speak to each other again. Right? Being separated and divided by that gospel. Right? These things are sad. And sometimes what happens in a re- is that we are tempted to, to compromise our faith, aren't we? In order that we might have those relationships that we so desperately want. But what Paul's telling us here is that we have to keep our eyes on the cross, right? Paul so desperately wanted a relationship with his kinsmen, the Jews. But he wasn't willing to turn away from the gospel, to turn away from the cross in order to have it. Right? It's the cross that, that gets people through difficult times. It's the cross that got Paul through those difficult times while he was imprisoned. It's the cross that got those seven churches in Asia Minor that we read about in the book of Revelation. Right through those difficult times. And it's, it's the cross today that, that will get you and I through those difficult and trying times in our own lives. Right, Jesus Himself knew this. He, he knew what believing in the Gospel meant. And so, He told His disciples in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10-12, to 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Right? This is what every single believer needs to constantly fill their minds with and be reminded of. Because the race that we run is a, is a long race. It's a hard race. It's a, it's a bone-aching race. It's a tiring race. It's a painful race and sometimes right, we want to choose what is easy as opposed to what is hard. There are some times when we see that cross and we don't want to pick it up. We rather navigate around it. But what keeps you running that race and running it well and running it towards the end is not dwelling upon those crosses or dwelling upon your suffering or dwelling upon your circumstances, but rather what gets you through it is dwelling on the cross. Dwelling upon Christ. Dwelling upon what Christ has done for you. Uh, Dwelling upon what He endured on your behalf. Dwelling upon why He did it. To, To bring you one day to where He is. That we might spend eternity in that close and intimate fellowship with our Lord. People throughout our lives, for the whole course of our lives, and this is a message even especially for young people. People are going to try to direct your eyes and your gaze away from the cross all the time. They're going to try to throw all these different earthly things right in your way that are going to try to distract you from the cross. Uh, some of those things would be false doctrine that is earthly and carnal as the Judaizers are trying to do with these Galatian converts that we see in our text today. But others will try to promise you a a better life if you take your eyes off the cross. No persecution. No trouble. More opportunities. Better relationships with family members and friends and, and co-workers. People that you really would like to have a close relationship with. But anyone who would ever suggest those things to you, anyone who would ever suggest you take your eyes off the cross for any reason, we need to see is a devil in disguise. Right? Because taking your eyes off of Christ and eventually keeping your eyes off of Christ will lead you to eternal death. Right? It, will, it will lead you to being severed from the grace of God found in Christ. And if you are severed from the grace of God in Christ, 
you are the most miserable of all of creation. This is why Paul then says in verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. He's saying, I I wish that these people would, would be cast off from fellowship with you. Right? But he uses the strongest of language, doesn't he? That they would be castrated. That they would emasculate themselves. Now, if this is strong language he uses. And there are some people who read that language and think, maybe Paul stepped out of bounds on this one. But listen to what Calvin says here when he comments about this, especially in light of the fact that right, Paul is, is a minister of these people. He's a shepherd over these people. And Calvin, as a shepherd of his own people, thinks about it and he says this. He says, Ought not my care of the church swallow up all my thoughts and lead me to desire that its salvation should be purchased by the destruction of the wolf? Right? Isn't that so true? Right? The Judaizers are the wolf here in this example. And they are interfering with the salvation of God's people. Right? Those whom Paul is a shepherd over. Those whom Paul loves and cares for and is concerned over. Right? It is the Judaizers who have stopped these Gentile converts from running well. They are the ones who are causing them to question the atonement and the efficacy of Christ's death. And so Paul wants them to set their gaze back upon the cross. And so Paul prays. But they would be cast off forever from the fellowship of God's people. And he says it in the strongest of terms. Being a good shepherd. I mean, think about it. If you were a shepherd and you had a sheep in, a, you know, fenced in your yard and a wolf got in, what would a good shepherd do? The, the good shepherd would not be concerned with the wolf, would he? He'd be concerned, he'd be concerned with his sheep. And so he'd run in there. And he would do whatever needed to be done to get that wolf out of there so that his sheep might be protected. Right? That's the very thing that we need to see then that Paul is doing here as he, as he says that he wishes that they would just castrate themselves. He wishes them gone. God's judgment upon them. Right? That they would not suffer to harm these believers anymore. Right? Because he wants their eyes to return to the cross because he knows in order to run well, our eyes must always be fixed upon the cross. Our eyes and our lives must always be lived upon the cross. Look at what Paul says then in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. This leads us then to our third and our final point in this morning, which we said is, eyes set lovingly on one another. Eyes set lovingly on one another. We said the way that we run well is looking forward towards the goal, the finish line. The way that we run well is always keeping our eyes fixated upon the cross. And now thirdly and lastly, we see Paul tells us the way that we run well is by loving one another. Right? As Christians, though, we, we have a problem, though, don't we? The same problem that the world does, and that is that we struggle with the flesh. Or we battle the flesh. And often, sometimes the, the flesh overcomes. The flesh wins against us. 
When we talk about though the flesh here, where Paul speaks about the flesh, we need to ask what exactly does Paul mean when he talks about the flesh? And what he means is that the remnants of our corruption that still remain, even though we have been given a new nature. Right? And so it's not, it's not that you have two natures now. Right? That you have a sin nature and a new nature. And they do war. But rather, God has taken away your sin nature, given you a new nature. But He has not given you a perfected nature. Okay? He's given you a new nature. Not a perfected nature. He could have given you a perfected nature, but He chose not to perfect your nature to glory. And so we have this new nature, but we still have this kind of indwelling sin and corruption that sometimes right, bubbles up inside. Right, those, those sinful remnants that still dwell in us oftentimes whisper things to the ear of the Christian, don't they? Things that still excite us. And usually it happens one of two ways. Right, oftentimes what happens is, is our, our sin nature will whisper things to us that are ungodly, that we will try to put a Christian twist on so that we can do them. Or our, our sinful uh, flesh will, will raise up thoughts about things that are godly, but that our sin nature wants to twist and make ungodly. Right? We see this a lot of times, and one of the ways in which we see this is with freedom, right? with our liberty as Christians. Uh, maybe as kids, or you who have kids, you've taken your kids to the park before, and you've said, okay, now you can roam free. Right? You're free, just run, do what you want, no, no restrictions, no restraints, have at it, have fun. But it's that idea of freedom, of no restrictions and no restraints that I think still believers like themselves. But I think this is why you have so many uh, who are call themselves Christian, though who deny that we are bound to, to continue to observe the moral law of God. Right? Because I think sinfully, inwardly, right, they desire to have no restrictions and no restraints in their life. Right, but we need to understand that, that Christian freedom, that Christian liberty that we declare is not one that says you are free from everything or free to do anything. It doesn't say that you are free from all regulations or, or all restraint. It's that attitude actually that leads many ultimately away from Christ. Right, it's that, that idea of freedom that, that leads many away from the cross. Right, why? Well, because they say, well, if I'm free, then there's no need to belong to a, a local body. Right? There's no need to sit under the ministry of the Word. Uh, there's no need to, to pray. Right? I'm free in Christ. I don't need to do these things. I'm not, I'm not bound. I'm just led by the Spirit everywhere. I'm free to get drunk then. I'm free to uh, engage in all sorts of sexual immoral acts. I'm, I'm free to watch things, listen to, and speak like all of the unsaved people that I know. And so in a sense, the Judaizers have a valid concern though, don't they? It's valid, but... It's only a concern because they don't understand who Christ is. They don't understand why Christ came uh, and, and what He has accomplished, uh, not only in redemption, but in the hearts of His people and the application of that redemption in us. Right? They hear free grace. Right? They hear freedom and a dismissal of circumcision and the Mosaic law. And they think that what Paul is saying freedom means is a life lived unto yourselves outside of the will of God, outside of the law of God, so that we are just kind of a law unto ourselves. And so, yes, they despise that. Right? But what Paul has made clear, and as he reiterates here in our text, that that is not at all the, what freedom means to him. Right? What freedom means to him is, is not an excuse now to act fleshly, he says. 
It's not an excuse to act fleshly. He says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. What is the flesh there? Remember, it's that sin nature, that indwelling sin. Later in verse 17 of chapter 5, he says, The desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. Right? And so we are not to, to be sowing to the flesh. We are not to use our freedom and our liberty to, to engage in, in fleshly acts that are opposed to the Spirit of God. And so Paul says, freedom is never to be used as an excuse for sin. And so any of us here today, if you ever have a, a question, you know, I know that I'm free in Christ, can I do this? What you always ought to ask yourself is, is what I'm doing sin? Is what I'm doing going to result in sin? Because if, if the answer is yes, then the answer is, can I use my freedom to do this? The answer is no. You are to refrain from doing it. Right? Realizing that that's not why Christ died. Right? Christ did not come down, suffer for your sin, and die that you might live in sin. But rather, He did that, that you might be indwelt by the Spirit and live unto God. Right? Not to yourselves. And a major part of that is this. He says, you've been given freedom so that through love you would serve one another. In verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's one of the reasons that you and I don't run very well. It's because we spend so much time consumed with ourselves. Right? Every day, we're consumed with, with what I want. Uh, I want this. I want to try that. I want to do this. Right? That's what we're, we're so consumed with. But the Christians who run well are not the ones who are consumed with the I-I-I, but rather they are focused on others. Right? They are focused on, on serving others. Now what's interesting here though is, is that Paul quotes from Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18. It's the same passage that Jesus quotes from in Matthew 22 verse 39 when the Pharisee asks him, uh, what is the greatest commandment? And he tells him to love the Lord your God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and the second, he says, is to love your neighbor as yourself. And the question is, well, what is, what is Jesus doing there? Jesus is summarizing the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, love for God under the, the first table of the law, the first four commandments. Our love or duty towards man in the second table of the law, those last six commandments. Now, Now, Paul only says, love neighbor as yourself, but when he says that, What's implied is the entire moral law. Right? The entire moral law is implied in loving your neighbor as yourself because you cannot love neighbor as yourself without first loving God. Right? The first table comes before the second. Right? You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you do not first love God. And so within every commandment of the second table lies the first table. Right? Loving God. That's the only way that you can love your neighbor. And so... I say this because we all ought to find this very interesting for those folks that say that we are not bound to the moral law. Because what do we see Paul doing? Here in our text today, he's telling not, not Jews, but Gentile converts that they are to obey the moral law of God. Right? He sums up the last table by saying, love neighbor as yourself. And so he necessarily includes the first table with it. But see the motivation for loving and for serving is, is God. Right? His love towards us moves us to love. Right? His love towards us, causing us to love Him, is what enables us now to obey the commandments of God. And so it's law-keeping out of the heart. It's not law-keeping 
because we seek favor with God, but it's law-keeping because you love God and want to serve God and want to obey God. And so, if you don't have love for your neighbor, right? if you don't have love for the one sitting beside you and behind you in the pew, then you cannot love God. John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. Which means that a sign to us that we are a true believer and that the Spirit lives in us is that you love your neighbor. And loving your neighbor means, yes, caring for them physically and what they physically need, but even more so, it means caring about their spiritual needs, right? And caring about their, their soul, right? So you as a Christian cannot say, I love my neighbor, and yet you keep enticing friends and family members to sin. Right? That's not loving neighbor as you love yourself. Right? That's not love, right? Love does no evil, right? Love seeks the advantage and the good of your neighbor and never seeks to to bring them into sin. Too often I think this world sees very bad examples of of Christian love though amongst Christians. Um, think about it. You know, where where does the world see the love of God? Where do we expect them to see it? It's to be seen in the church. And, and, and those people who comprise the church. But if we don't speak it, if we don't live it, if we don't show it, how is the world ever going to hear it and know it? Right? We need to stop playing the church, brothers and sisters, and we need to be the church. Not just saying right things, but doing right things, especially towards one another, even in this body. Right, we've all we've all heard that phrase, uh, actions speak louder than words, right? What do your actions here in this church right, say about your feelings towards one another? That I have no time for my brothers or sisters in the Lord? That I love you, but I don't really care to get to know you? Is that how we would want Christ to deal with us? We want Christ to say, well, I could come down and save you. But I don't really want to, so I'm not going to. Or now as believers, would we want Christ to say to us as we call out to Him in prayer, I hear your prayer, but I, I don't really want to answer. Is that how you'd want Christ to deal with you? That's not how any of us would want Christ to deal with us. So why do we find it so easy to deal with one another in that manner? And when he says, love your neighbor as yourself also, we need to understand he's not talking about the quantity of love. So that we can kind of excuse ourselves and say, well, I don't love myself very much, so I don't have to love others very much either. Right? It's not what he's talking about here. In fact, as believers, oftentimes we, we are called to love our neighbor more than ourselves. Uh, you are to love the soul of your neighbor more than you love your temporal life. This is why missionaries go off into distant and dangerous lands sometimes. And they end up dying. 
because they loved the souls of those people and wanted them to hear the gospel and so gave up of, them, of their lives for those people. Right? They, they loved them more than they loved their temporal life. And so the, the kind of love that he's talking about when he says, love your neighbor as yourself is, a, is, a, is the quality of love he's speaking about, not the quantity. Right? It's the same thing Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28. When he says, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies because you wouldn't harm your own body. Right? It's the quality of love he's speaking about. Right? This is the end for which we live. Right? Serving God through serving one another. And that just though isn't in the church. Right? You serve God by serving one another in the church, but at home, at work, in your neighborhood, out in society, with family, and with friends. But what happens when we fail to be the church? What happens when we fail to love as Christ has called us to love? Well, look at verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. His point is that you will destroy yourselves ultimately. Just like animals bite and devour one another. If the church bites and devours one another, how do we do that? Well, by backbiting, by slandering, by... Unkind gestures, expressions, looks, starting factions and causing or breeding contention amongst the saints that, that none of us will run, will run well, right? None of us will end up crossing that finish line if we each and every one of us devour ourselves. But this is why it's so important as a church that when issues arise, right, we have to resolve to always address them right away. Right, to not allow issues to, to kind of fester and to bubble up, but rather to seek to be at peace at a, as a church always. Right, we are to seek the, the good of this church together. Right, our goals as a church in that ought to all be aligned. Right, we all ought to want to put away our selfishness and desire to be united together as a church around Christ and around the Gospel, encouraging one another to run well and we do that by directing each other's eyes to the finish line. Right? We do that by never allowing each other to take our eyes off of the cross. And we do that by making sure that our, our eyes are set right, lovingly upon our neighbor right, in this church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is rich with meaning. It is rich in wisdom. And it is rich in blessing. Uh, Lord, we pray that You would uh, bless Your people this very day as we have heard Your uh, Word proclaimed. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, You would forgive us of our sin, of our lack of, of love towards You and towards our neighbor. Uh, that is a failure and a flaw in us, in our fleshly nature. And Lord, we pray that You would Help us to, to mortify that sin and to put it to death in our lives. That, that we would be a people who, who love God with our entire being and love neighbor as ourselves. Uh, Lord, we pray as we come before You this morning that You likewise would, would enable us by the powerful working of Your Spirit to not be distracted by all of the things that... Um, would cause us to, to compromise our faith or to walk away from the, the racetrack that You have placed us upon. But Father, we 
pray that You would help to encourage us every day to continue to run and to run well by setting our eyes on on nothing else ultimately than, than Christ our Savior. And it's in His name today we pray. Amen.